All right. Hey, morning, Illuminate. So good to be with you guys. Listen, um, before we get into it, uh, special welcome to those of you uh, who are with us for the first time. My name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to have the opportunity to do that. I'm going to be hanging out right here after the service. If you've got a couple minutes, uh, make sure you stop by and say hi. So this last Thursday was Veterans Day, and I want to make sure that we give some uh, honor where honor is due. If you are active, former, serve in the military in any way, would you just stand to your feet so we can, uh, we can acknowledge you? Nice. Thank you. Appreciate you all very, very much. Anybody attend GCU here? You need some chapel credits, make sure you're there tomorrow. I'm gonna to be speaking. <laughs> Take up your credits tomorrow. Important chapel credits, I'm gonna be there, it's gonna be fun. Uh, so here's the deal. Thanksgiving is a week and a half away, y'all ready? I was reading that, uh, it's estimated that 55 million Americans are gonna be traveling this uh, Thanksgiving, almost approaching pre pandemic levels, which means that families are going to be together like they haven't in the last couple of years. And so while that brings a lot of joy for many, I can tell you that from the seat that I sit in as I talk to people, there are just as many people who look forward or more forward to the holidays being over than when they start, right? Uh, what do you do when the family gathering is a bit dysfunctional? By the way, there is no normal family on this planet. We've all got a bit of dysfunction going on. What's it like when that person asks you to pass the gravy and you're like, I don't even like you. <laughs> Get your own gravy. <laughs> it's like, I saw what you posted on social media. Not having it. You know, so many things continue to be gaslit, hard to enter into conversations, and now you're all gathered together, and what are you going to talk about? And stuff comes out. Stuff comes out. You understand why in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you want to know who my family members are? You want to know about my mom, my dad, my brothers and my sister? I'll tell you about my family. Here's how my family is defined. It's the man, it's the woman who does the will of God. If you pursue the things that God has for you, the things that God wants for you in this life, you're my family member. And many of us, you know, it's like we, we, we understand that, you know, because we're closer to our church family than our flesh and blood family. And there's an affinity that we have instantly when we walk through these doors and we come in here, and, and that's because we all share the spirit of Christ. We have the same spirit. You understand the importance of why Jesus prayed a prayer for future believers, and he makes a request, and it's kind of cool because of all the things that he could ask for, what would it be? When he has you in mind 2,000 years ago, he says this in John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, that is the people that are surrounding him, those who currently believe 
in who he is. He says, I'm making a request, but it's not just for these people that I'm here with now who follow me, because these people are actually going to tell other people about me, and they're going to believe in me, and it's those people that I'm praying for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. As these people talk about me, others will come to faith, and I pray for those. I pray for future believers. And here's the request, that they may all be one. And then he lays down the sense in which we would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's no closer bond of unity than what he just laid down. That they also may be in us. It is this new family that God is creating. But then he lays down the explanation of why that's so important. He says, so that the world may believe something. Because there's something supernatural about Jesus that he has entrusted to his followers the responsibility of communicating. Let me say that again. There's something supernatural. This is important to understand. This is why Jesus makes this prayer. There's something supernatural about Jesus that he has entrusted to us, his followers, to communicate to the world. And what is it? That you, God, have sent me. It's really remarkable that God would entrust to his people the honor and the privilege of communicating who he is. That only happens through unity. So in other words, what he's saying is this. This is why unity is so important amongst the Christian community. Unity gives birth to belief. Unity, our unity, actually creates belief. How will the world know that Jesus was sent by God? Jesus says, it's gonna be done by the way in which we treat one another. The world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for each other. So alternatively, disunity creates disbelief. Uh, I, was, uh, I was boarding a plane and I was standing in line, it was backed up and I was standing uh, right in front of the door, behind the door where the, was the pilot and the co-pilot and as we were waiting to take our seats, the pilot and the co-pilot started arguing. And it got super awkward for those of us that were standing right in front of the door. Doors open. And it's getting a little bit more heated and a little bit more intense. And those of us standing in line were kind of like, I hope they get this resolved. And what was happening was there wasn't a whole lot of trust, right? It's like, these guys better get on the same page because the stakes are kind of high, literally. It could be our lives if there's some disagreement or if these guys don't like each other. Disunity creates disbelief, distrust. And so this is why uh, the powers of darkness, Satan, their master strategy is to create disunity amongst God's people. Uh, how many people have been turned away from the faith because of this? It's been said that the world will be one for Christ when the people of God are one in Christ. And so I'm super thankful that collectively as a church body, we experience a great deal of unity. I've got some friends that have been pastoring for many years. This last 18, 24 months has been particularly gnarly. 
has been a really tough season to navigate, not only amongst the congregation, but amongst their own team. Even seemingly small things become big things. But I'm very thankful for the maturity that we have had uh, together corporately as a body. Question is, how do we maintain it? This is a question that Peter answers for us in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's going to give some very practical help. And along the way, I think this is going to bring some, some practical help into your lives over the next couple of months as you gather with friends and family. So let me explain what's happening. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in the first half, it's really cool. Read it on your own. But essentially what he does is he says, listen, you're going to find yourself in different roles in life. You, you, you might be a husband, a father, an employer, an employee, uh, a citizen, right? He says, this is what's necessary in order for you to maintain your Christian witness in the midst of a hostile environment. That's the first half of 1 Peter chapter 3. And then in the second half, he gets very, very broad and he says, now, now I want to address everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what role you have in life. And he says this, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So how many of you are going to do at least a little bit of cooking at Thanksgiving? Just by show of hands. At least do a little bit. That's it. The rest of you are moochers. <laughs> That's sad, man. Get it going. Just watching free football games this year. Um, so here's the deal. What, what we have in this one sentence is a, is a, think of it this way, it's a five-ingredient recipe that will bring, if there's any hope at all, that will bring harmony to your table, okay? Five-ingredient five recipe, right? Begins with this. He says, unity of mind. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we, have, uh, uh, we all have the exact same thoughts. What he's talking about is essential unity. We are one body in Christ. We don't all share the exact same thoughts. God's design is for diversity. How do we know that? Look at creation. God is incredibly diverse. There is so much diversity in creation, and so the people of God should be a reflection of this. You know the word university is actually a compound word, and it literally means unity in the midst of diversity. Now, ironically, many universities, many secular universities, aren't quite as diverse as they think they are in terms of their openness to different thought. But God's people should be unified in the midst of our diversity. Unity of mind. Question, whose mind? Whose thoughts should we be unified around? Well, it's not mine and it's not yours because the Bible tells us we have the mind of Christ. Question, how do we know what the mind of Christ is? Answer, we said it last week. That's why it is so important for you to get all up in here. Let me say that again. It's so important for you to know the scriptures, for you to read and apply them. I think one of the greatest sounds, this is before technology took over, right? Was this sound right here? Right? It's just this sound. It's the fingers of God's people just moving through his word, reading it, applying it, understanding what the mind of Christ is. Because then when we come together, we, we begin to think, okay, now how should we think about this? 
Well, we have an answer for that, right? See, and here, here's what's fascinating. Jesus doesn't say, the world will know that, um, that I come from God if everybody votes the same way. He actually doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, the, the world will know that, that I come from God if, um, if we solve every controversy. Now, he's talking about essential unity. What is the mind of Christ on these issues? How are we supposed to respond and, and react? Uh, there can be no unity without truth. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the what? Truth. Thy word is truth. If, there, if we have any hope of being unified in mind, we have to have access to the truth. We have it. So then when the truth is known and applied, it breeds unity. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, I can't encourage you strongly enough if you're not, to begin even in the smallest ways of getting yourself into God's word. Start small, how about that? Even 10 minutes. There are some amazing apps. There's absolutely no excuse. Version Bible app. Um, through the word Bible app. We have virtually unlimited access 24 seven to the, you know what, let me just put it to you this way. Redeem your phone. <laughs> Let me say it again. Redeem your phone. You control it. Don't allow it to control you for God's glory. Secondly, he says, I've never met anybody, okay? I've never met anybody who said, you know what? That challenge has just ruined my life. Reading and applying the Bible has just made me so awful. Secondly, second ingredient. He says, be sympathetic. This is a really cool Greek word. Essentially, it's sympathia. It's, it's, uh, it means to understand. Sympathetic people bring to their relationships a genuine desire to understand others. And the reality is everybody has their story. And you never know what someone has been through. You, you never know what kind of pain they have had to endure. You never know what they had to face, even as a kid. What has been brought into his or her life that has shaped who they are into adulthood. You never know what someone has been through. So this is, a, this is great because you can enter into a conversation with somebody only wanting to be heard and not wanting to hear. And what happens is you become quick to judge those people without understanding their story and where God has taken them, what God is doing in his or her life. Um, many have had unwanted things forced upon them, and they're still trying to unwind from that. To be sympathetic is to enter into that person's feelings and experience and to listen. There's this, this picture of one believer coming alongside another and entering into that Burden. Have you ever had someone do this for you? This is the story of Job. 
Job is actually, I, I want to teach you the book of Job. By the way, after the first of the year, we're going to be walking through the book of Genesis. But, but the book of Job is really interesting because Job is actually a theological book. It's a theological book, and here's why. It's a book on theology. People say it's a book about pain and suffering. Ultimately, it's, it's a book, it's a theological book. Because back in the day, the leading theology amongst the Jews is, if you did something wrong, God was going to make you pay for it. You were going to have things taken away from you. So what happens is, Job has all of these things taken away from him, and his friends enter into his life, and they try to give him theology, the theology of the day. And the theology of the day said, well, Job, you must have done something. You must have done something to bring this upon you. And see, it's when his friends start talking, things start to get unwound. When they sit with him and they give him the gift of presence, just presence, that's when they become a salve to Job's wounds. And by the way, that was the whole point. You see, Job didn't do anything wrong. That's the theology in the book. It was a test from God saying that, well, if clearly if you have stuff, that means God loves you, and now you don't, so God doesn't love you. No, that's not, that's bad theology. That's why the book of Job is about theology. So, uh, when we sympathize with each other, we promote unity. Thirdly, he says, show brotherly love. Fun word, Greek word is Philadelphia, used to express the love that siblings have amongst themselves. Um, maybe you've got siblings, you mix like oil and water. Blood supposedly is thicker than water, but the idea behind family is that family is there for one another. Now, what happens in the church is that very often people think that this falls to their small group leader or into the pastoral staff. You know, they're the ones who are to take care of, of things. Um, but let, let me remind us of a very important idea that Peter gives in chapter one. He says that every single one of you is a priest, a royal priest. So this is a royal priesthood. So back in the day, this crazy idea, this was really blowing people's minds because it, it, the priest was someone who was an intermediary, right? On behalf of God and the people, the priest stood there and did that work. But Paul says that there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. Now, the rest of you now, now, now it's a royal priesthood. You have direct access to God through Jesus. And so in this royal priesthood, you don't leave it up to someone else to do the work of bringing people close to God. That's actually your job. It's not just the role of the pastor or your small group leader. That's actually your job as one who belongs to the royal priesthood. Fourth ingredient, he says, have a tender heart. Literally, this word can be described as one who is compassionate. This is a super fun Greek word. It literally means guts. Why? Because the ancient Greeks believed that emotions came from the deepest parts of, of, of your organs. We would say, speak from the heart. We would say, oh, it's from the heart, from the heart, right? The heart is the seat of intellect, emotion, and will. They would say it was your guts. They would say, speak from your bowels. You have to be careful saying that, right? <laughs> but that was it for them. Like, this is it. You know, if you really want to enter into somebody's pain and feel what they feel, you're going to summon it up from within you. And by the way, it's always interesting because this word is, is attached to action. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. This is the same Greek word that's used to describe the compassion that Jesus felt when he looked out and he saw the people and they were like sheep without shepherds. Sheep get very nervous in the absence of a good shepherd. Sheep get very anxious 
in the absence of a good shepherd. And so Jesus looks out and he's like, these people are lost. Look at them running around. They're all nervous, they're anxious. Like a lot of people in our society today, they're like sheep. And Jesus is moved with compassion. And then, bam, what you see him doing is you see him ministering to these people. You see him teaching. You see him healing. And what was modeled in Jesus is expected of all of us. And last half of chapter 25, a couple weeks ago, we covered the first half. But um, Jesus talks about his return. He's going to be sitting on this throne in glory. All the nations bow down before him. And then there's this interesting separation of of two groups, the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, God had this plan that he was working. That's one of the reasons why I wanna study the book of Genesis with you all, is because it speaks to our time in a profound way. First of all, it answers the question, who is God? Secondly, it answers the question, who am I? Thirdly, what am I doing here? Fourthly, why is the world so jacked up? Fifthly, what was God's plan for the world originally? And sixthly, what is God gonna do to restore things back to his original intention? That's the book of Genesis. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Jesus said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. And remember the word righteous is just, it's just a big word that describes people who do right deeds. How do we know what right deeds are? That's why we want to understand what the scriptures say. So the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? We never actually saw you. And the king when we move into Advent season, it's going to be a little bit different in a few weeks. It's not going to be your typical love, joy, peace, hope. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the offices of Jesus as prophet, priest, king, and savior. That's going to be our Advent. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, what's he say? My brothers. We often talk about the least of these, the least of these. That's often used in the context of missions and people that are down and out, maybe a, the homeless person. Actually, the context of one of the least of these, Jesus said, it's my brother or sister. It's in, within the family of God. You did it to me. What he's saying is compassion is sympathy in action. Moves you to heal hurts and meet needs. And when you do that, especially within the household of God, it's like you're doing it to Jesus himself. You say, well, where do I start? We have a mobile kitchen. The first Sunday of every month, the mobile kitchen is out there. It is there not so much to feed us because we really don't need another meal provided. It's there to inspire you to get involved. Because even right now, it's on its way down to Sunny Slope with a team of people who are serving. You're next. Uh, we've got some Christmas boxes. One of those do back. Today, next week, pick one up today. You're like, I already picked one up. Pick up another one, right? So all of this sounds cool. Sounds great, fits well with the season of gratitude. We love it, truth, sympathy, love, compassion, all good stuff. There's one essential ingredient, and if you don't have it, it's not gonna work. You ready? No, no chance, for, there is no chance for unity in any of your relationships without this one ingredient, and here it is. It says humility. You can't have unity without humility. And doesn't that make sense? Because if you go around thinking that you're high and mighty and better than everybody else, 
ain't nobody going to want to be a part of what you're doing. So what is humility? Um, our world has it confused. You know, there was a really thick book written a long time ago. It was called The Book of Virtues. I can't remember who wrote it. It was Bennett, thank you. William Bennett wrote it, thank you. Big old thick book, Book of Virtues, right? This, guess which virtue was absent from that book? Humility. Humility. Not, not super popular virtue in our time. Yet the scriptures say you're not going to be unified by, unless you have it. So humility is not saying, you know what, I'll never accomplish anything. I'm the scum of the earth. I'm no good. Nobody likes me. No, that's what the world would call low self-esteem. Humility is seeing yourself rightly. This is the, one of the many beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you're feeling really low, which we all do sometimes, the gospel says, no, 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 now wait a minute. Understand that you're incredibly valuable because Jesus died on the cross for you. Don't start feeling too, too low now because you are worth a son to the Father. You're incredibly valuable. And then when we start thinking a little too much of ourselves, <laughs> right, when we get a little too full of ourselves, the gospel says, no, 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 come back down, come back down. Because you see that cross? You're a sinner in need of a savior. Don't think too highly of yourself now. See, this is the beauty of the gospel because it puts you in your proper place. Not too high, not too low. Loved more than you know. Not as good as you think you are. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, we're all there. We're all exposed as sinners in need of a savior. Uh, I love the story of Henry Nouwen. <clears throat> Catholic priest, has written well over a dozen, dozen books, uh, Great book called Return of the Prodigal. Great book. It's a short book. You can read it in probably an hour. He was a famous author, famous speaker. He taught at the Ivy League schools, Harvard, uh, Yale, Notre Dame. He had a resume to die for. And that was the problem. His speaking schedule, all the other commands that he had on his time, led him to burnout. It was so bad that he was actually hospitalized for several weeks trying to recover. See, you can run yourself. The body tells the story, by the way. Pay attention to how God does it. The body tells the story. You burn out your adrenal glands and you're good for nothing. And That's where Henry finds himself. He's in the hospital and just totally burned out. Well, an interesting thing happened while he was in the hospital because, as it turns out, nobody wants to hear from a burned-out priest anymore. So there are no invitations to speak. There uh, are no book offers. All of it's taken away. So while he's in the hospital, he's visited by some people from an organization called the Ark. This is a really special group of people. These are people who take care of those who can't take care of themselves. It wouldn't be uncommon for an individual who is completely, completely uh, incapable of taking care of him or, or himself or herself, even for their own family, for a family to drop off this individual at the doors of the ark and say, we can't deal, we can't deal with it, you deal with it. And so people from the ark would take these people in and they would 
give them what they need to survive. And so Henry gets visited by these people. They're bringing him meals, and they're sitting with him, they're talking with him. He is so moved by their compassion that he decides to join them when he recovers. And so here's the great Henry Nouwen, who is used to preaching in front of the masses, writing some of the most popular books in the last century of Catholic literature. And he's preaching to a small group of people in a little room. And half of those people are jerking and spazzing, and it would appear that nobody's paying attention, but it doesn't stop Henry from giving them words of life from the scriptures. And so one day Henry is approached and he's told, uh, we have a special assignment for you. We're going to entrust to your care, Adam. Adam is perhaps the most disabled in the entire community. He cannot feed himself. He cannot bathe himself. He cannot dress himself. He's completely and totally dependent on someone else for his survival. And they say, Henry, we would like for you to be with Adam as his caretaker, full time. And so Henry agrees, and within a few months, he's learning all these skills that he's never had before. He develops the arm strength to lift Adam out of his wheelchair and into the tub. He learns how to cut hair. He learns how to hold the cup just right, right up to Adam's mouth so that he can drink without spilling because if he spills, then Henry's going to have to change his clothes. And over time, they develop this really special relationship. Adam cannot communicate, at least not well, but they get by together. And after a while, someone learns of what Henry is now doing and the life that he's pursued and what he's left behind, and they interview him. And the interviewer is just beside himself. He can't believe what he's seeing. And he's like, why is the great Henry Nowen doing this? And Henry says, here's what I've learned. Without this opportunity to put myself in this position, I would never, ever have learned what Adam had to teach me about myself and about my God. You see, Adam has taught me and has helped me far more than I could ever help him. Our world will tell you, look out for number one, upward mobility. And in the midst of that, what you see is this humble man following God's path, becoming downwardly mobile. You ever think about that? Downwardly mobile. And doesn't that resonate with everything Jesus said? You want to be first? Put yourself last. You want to be great? Serve others. You want to find your life? Just give it away. Lose it. Everything Jesus said is paradoxical, and that's the beauty of it. Jesus was the master teacher and the genius philosopher. Everything that's thrown at you in this world Turn it upside down. And that is where you will find life. 
So as you gather with your friends and your family around the dinner table, whatever that looks like for you this holiday season, remember uh, these ingredients. Most of all, remember that these are the ingredients that Jesus displayed toward you. So let that melt your heart. And as your heart is melted by what Jesus did for you, you can find it within yourself to display truth, compassion, humility, tender heart, all of the things that are necessary to build unity. And by the way, it starts first and foremost within the family of God. Father, as we leave this place, will you continue to impress upon our hearts your goodness towards us? Father, it is a season of gratitude, but as we said last week, Christians, it's just not a season, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that's born true because the more we meditate on the good words of Jesus and his life and what he did for us, we are changed and transformed. The more the scriptures get up into our lives, we're just different in ways that we were created to be different, ways that feed us and give us life. So many things in this world, culturally, especially even now, steal from our souls and draw us away from you. Father, I pray that within this community you would continue to give us unity so that the world will take notice and understand the unity in the midst of this diversity tells us something special about the one who we are unified around. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. For his glory, for his fame. Lord, may this season of Thanksgiving be different for us because we understand why we should be thankful. For your glory, we pray, and God's people said, Amen.